Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Bama Online Podcast. It is a midweek edition of T. Watts and T.R. right here on the BOL Podcast. Travis Schreier, Senior Analyst for BamaOnline.com, joined by site publisher Tim Watts on the heels of Alabama's latest win on the men's basketball front in Southeastern Conference action, this one over South Carolina in Columbia, South Carolina on Tuesday evening. We'll get into some of that. We're going to get into some of the latest mock draft info that's out there for the 2021 NFL draft. We are going to get in our way back machine and go all the way back to Nick Saban's initial recruiting effort at Alabama. We will sort through that 2007 recruiting class for the Alabama Crimson Tide. We'll also hit on some other items of particular note, including a replacement, a checklist, if you will, for the recently departed Carl Scott leaves Alabama as the cornerbacks coach to join the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, and also some questions, some, uh, some, some thoughts on some Alabama quarterbacks of late and their potential at the NFL level to win a Super Bowl. Jalen, Tua, Mac, all of that. And of course, we'll have our Bama Online Roundtable mailbag to take us home. And with that, Tim Watts, I bring you on here, and we get things going with a quick overview of Alabama's win over South Carolina on Tuesday night, despite 22 turnovers from the Crimson Tide. That's a season high for Nate Oates' team. And going the final four-plus minutes without a field goal, the Crimson Tide still manages to grind out a three-point win over Frank Martin's Gamecocks on the road. You take them any way you can get them, right, Tim? Absolutely. I mean, you've seen this game over the years. We've seen that exact game. How many times has Alabama lost that game? I mean, I can I can think of a dozen examples in the last five or six years, probably, where same type game. And you got to remember, I mean, Alabama's playing. To me, Alabama's got a huge bullseye on their back. They hit the top 10. They're still number 11. Um, so they are getting everybody's best shot. They're not necessarily used to getting everybody's best shot. You know, they played as an underdog most of the year. Then they went on that stretch with Kentucky, LSU, and a few where they just looked unbeatable, and everybody in the country was talking about them. Well, since that time, everybody's coming at them with their A game. And to be honest, they've been extremely competitive. Even Missouri, awful first half, have no business being in that game. There's no reason Alabama fans are watching that game at the end, and they are with a chance to win. And that's what you looked at last night. Turnovers obviously are a big deal. Bad breaks keep getting them. Juwan Carey leaving the game. That's a big loss that early. You know, it's a lot of rebounds. He's given a lot, a lot of effort play, but, you know, Petty came up big. You saw some guys come up. I mean, 
Quinterly still, you know, you love him. You know, you, you don't like him as much with the turnovers. He's a little loose with the ball, but he's got a lot of talent. He just got to tighten that up a little bit. But all in all, I mean, shot very well at the free throw line, or that would could have been easily been the difference in the game last night. So I think you take that win. South Carolina, we're not motivated. Herb's banged up. Still without Brunner, and Jawan goes down. I think you take that win every day of the week. Yeah, even with all those pieces that you talked about, either ailing or out altogether, Alabama still plus two in rebounding on Tuesday evening. And the scenario up three with two seconds to go last night, Tim, South Carolina inbounding from under its own goal, really liked the move by Nate Oates. Wisely took away the three-point line with that three-point lead and Lo and behold, South Carolina sort of took the bait there in settling for a layup to cut the lead to one with just, what, two seconds to go. Rojas goes down and hits a couple of big free throws. Um, Again, wasn't pretty, but situationally, you know, Alabama in a close game, a kind of game you're going to have to be able to close out in postseason play, got the job done. You know, we said this a lot during football season when there was gripes about the way a team was winning. I'll tell you this, and we said it during football, we'll say it during, sell it, say it during basketball. There's a lot of teams that would swap these ugly wins and these close losses for the losses they're dealing with. Duke, Kentucky, North Carolina, three of the uh, uh, perennial powers, you know, they're struggling. So we said that during the football season. We kept saying it doesn't really matter how you win. You know, we're Al Davison. Just win. And I think Alabama and Nate Oates are doing a good job of that. Even their recent two losses were really close, really competitive um, against two good teams. And if you don't think Alabama's playing good teams, look at what happens in the polls after they lose a game. They drop one after losing to OU. Obviously, they felt that was a really good loss. And then they drop one after losing to Missouri, who they also felt was a good team. So I think they're getting plenty of respect. But I do think I agree with the fans that think they got to find their groove. They're a little off. You're not seeing – you're seeing one guy step up. I mean, Petty had a big game last night. But you're not seeing all two or three – you know, you're not seeing Primo and you're not seeing Shaq for all in the same game. Because when you do, you're getting that results you got at LSU and Kentucky where you had runaway victory. So I think there's a little bit of midseason wall they're hitting right now. Um, also, they're cruising. You know, the hardest thing to do in any sport is be the big leader. I mean, it's always good. You know, it always seems like the guy chasing is moving faster than the guy leading. So they're going to have to learn how to lead and finish uh, this SEC. And then I think when they get to tournament play, we're going to see the best basketball they've got in them. Here's what we do know. They've all but locked up a bye uh, in that first round, at least, of the Southeastern Conference Tournament. They're now 11-1 and in the league. Got Georgia coming in here on Saturday and Ole Miss on Wednesday night could really do Alabama a big favor and put an L on the second place Missouri Tigers over in Oxford. So still a little ways to go for this team. Yeah, offensively, the turnovers. I know the Alabama fans, a lot of our friends there on the round table don't like the misses at the rim or in the paint. Uh, but we talked about this before the podcast, especially when you go against a Frank Martin coach team. I mean, they're not going to give you anything. You know, there, there are layups, and there's a there are layups which you mm-hmm. shoot in your driveway, where you are you shoot before a basketball game warming up, where you dribble three hard dribbles, kick your knee up, touch it off the glass. It's a layup. Then there's layups where you're running a hundred miles an hour, going from right to left, trying to hit a left-handed layup with the guy contesting it. That's not a layup. 
That is a hard shot to hit. That is a defender. You see Alabama adjust those shots on the defensive end all the time. Guys trying to get to the rim and, you know, especially Herb. How many times does Herb take a quote layup, you know, and, you know, slap it somewhere else? So those are a little bit harder to hit. I agree. They've got to make them better. I think the, the, I think the better way to look at it is to get a more high percentage layup. You don't necessarily want to mm-hmm. be. You know, if you're Shackleford, you don't want to be going from the right side, crossing the lane, trying to hit a left-handed layup running. If you end up out of bounds in the student section, you probably you probably what probably wasn't your best effort there. <laughs> it might have been your best effort. It probably wasn't your best idea. Um, and, you know, that's just an effort play. I'll take an effort play every day of the week. But, yeah, a few of those shots maybe need to be a little bit smarter. I haven't really had a problem with guys just missing easy bunnies, as we used to call them, just layups. So, they got yeah, those contested shots. It, it isn't an energy issue, or it wasn't Tuesday night. I thought the energy was fine. Sometimes they do hurry, I guess you could say, getting a little bit too much of a hurry. And look, this is the way they play. They're very much downhill when it comes to getting to the rim. If you want to step in and challenge them on that front, and South Carolina under Frank Martin, not a team that's afraid to step in front, take some charges, do what you have to do on that front. And I think you hit on it, just sort of the decision-making in general, you know, which way to attack the rim. And in some instances, maybe look for the shooter and pitch it out for the three. Right. But You penetrate, you look for that guy trailing. You know they've got guys on the wings and uh, setting up with two feet, planning for a shot. So kicking that out, with, especially with the way Alabama plays, that shot's probably more a three-pointer in that situation. If you kick it out, it's probably a higher percentage shot than that layup attempt. You know what else it is, in addition to the approach of March Madness? It is officially mock draft season, Tim Watts. And Todd McShay, I understand, you pointed this out to me, has uh, in the last 24 hours here, again, a midweek edition of T. Watts and TR we're bringing to you, has dropped, I guess, his latest mock. Uh, And so we're going to go through this and kind of give you an idea, probably more so from an Alabama perspective than anything else, because I don't think you'd be surprised to learn that Todd's first four picks, he has quarterbacks. Each of the first four picks, he has quarterbacks going, starting with Trevor Lawrence to my Jacksonville Jaguars. He has Jamar Chase as the first wide receiver off the board at number six to the Philadelphia Eagles. He has Devontae Smith one pick later, Tim, going to the Detroit Lions, followed by Jalen Waddle at number eight to Tua Tonga Vailoa in the Miami Dolphins, and then Patrick Sertan right there at number nine to the Denver Broncos. So he has a cluster of Alabama there in the second half of the top ten of the first round. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I agree. <clears throat> there, you're going to reach for your quarterback. You got. I mean, the one thing I feel really confident in saying is to win in the National Football League, you need an elite-type quarterback. I don't think the, the system guy's really going to do as well. So until these guys get their quarterback, and you know, it has to be the fit. It has to be the guy. It has to be the leader that can help them. I think you – me, I'm drafting a quarterback every year. From the Lions, I would have drafted 10 quarter. I would have traded Stafford, and I would have drafted 10 quarterbacks the last 10 years is what I've done until I found my guy. For Smitty's sake, I'm hoping it's not Detroit. <laughs> I'm hoping it's because only Detroit. No Jared Goff or Smitty? I mean, dude, only Detroit. Think about this. They had Barry Sanders. They had Calvin Johnson. Uh, and they had Matthew Stafford. And we never hear their names. Now, Matthew Stafford's had a low-key. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a hole. 
And yeah. he sold them to me and you, you know, on wheel and bubble routes. We're rubbing screens, you know, running screens. So terrible. I mean, Barry Sanders, Calvin Johnson's never mentioned in the best wide receiver. He's one of the most dominant guys ever. So I'm hoping that Smitty doesn't actually end up there. But what a spot it would be for Waddle at eight with the Dolphins. Um, that'd be that'd be quite the pick. That'd be quite the pairing. The Dolphins definitely need it. Um, and then Pat Sertain, that's the big debate there with Pat and uh, Caleb Farley, the cornerback for Virginia Tech, who's going to be the top guy taken. Um, me, I'm a Pat guy. I see the Farley advantage. But to me, I'm taking the guy I know that can play football. You know, I'm not worried as much. Pat's going to and test. Played, and played this season, right? I mean, Pat, we've said this before, Pat had the – the lowest key goat career ever. His highlight take from Alabama six plays. Nobody messed with that man. You know, I mean, that's the ultimate sign of respect. They didn't mess with this dude for three years. Um, Harley, you know, Harley challenged him. Didn't really see a lot of passes his way. Uh, great tackler has the mental aspects you want. So obviously, I'm a Pat guy. Pat guy. But really interesting was seeing. Um, the uh, Mac Jones, the Bears trade up to 12 for Mac Jones pick. I've seen Mac go from a, <clears throat> you know, even after this season, when I talked to NFL guys, most felt middle second, late first. And I thought that was fair. There's nothing wrong with that. But we did discuss all the other quarterbacks going high, and that increases the value of the fifth, sixth, seventh quarterback. And the first four, the first four picks, that increases the value. But Mac going to the Bears, um, pretty interesting. I mean, I think you could see that fit. Uh, you know, from a, you know, you, Matt fits more NFL teams than you would think. Everybody's looking for Pat, Pat Mahomes, but they're hard to find. But it's good to see his stock, I think, climbing at this rate. What about the narrative that Mac Jones, in terms of arm strength, and you put him in the NFC North, and you get into December and January, and the elements come into play, and can he drive the ball as a passer the way you need to up there in the uh, in the North Midwest? And I, I guess the answer to that is it, it didn't seem to bother Tom Brady all that much in New England. Uh, I'd agree. I mean, it's <clears throat> I'm not sure the weather for me holding that football is all about hand size. You know, mm-hmm. I imagine Mac's going to have a good hand size, guys. And we've documented our, our Charles Power, our little. Uh, analytics guru and draft guy we love so much he's big on the hand size he's one of the first ones really in this industry uh i heard talking about it as much as he did and he's right i mean guys with smaller hands tend to tend not to be able to hold the ball as well it's just common sense but i think for mac that'll come down i think his arm strength's fine i think when you look at it i think he's a better arm strength guy than aj mccarron or a jake Fromm and some of those guys and we could go back through the draft of nfl picks and lord knows there's there's 20 guys who went in the first round that Mac has a better arm than Casey Whedon, Brady Quinn. I mean, some of those guys like that, you remember a lot of those guys that got drafted towards the end. Max also got every intangible that you could talk about. I mean, we talked about it going into this season. There's a cockiness to this guy. He's got it. You know, I mean, when the guy goes and impresses his teammates, which are loaded with NFL players, when all these guys loved him last year, when he wasn't the starter, you can see it on there. Social media, they loved Mac. And then you see Mac go this year. Obviously, everybody loved him. You saw the leadership qualities. But then you go to the Senior Bowl, and the number one story out of there was Mac Jones, right? I mean, I saw more stories on Mac than anybody else. Yeah, and there's some pieces already in place, obviously. They they need more around the quarterback position in Chicago. But we know defensively, 
uh, they are set up to, to be a challenger and be a sort of uh, playoff team that can go a round or two at least. So uh, definitely quarterback on the radar for the Chicago Bears as they look to move on from the failed Mitch Trubisky era as a ultra-high pick. I just a couple uh, more interesting things in this draft is down at the bottom, you see Najee at 30 to the Bills. The Bills would be lucky to have him. You see Christian Barbour to the Buccaneers, which is like, are y'all, <laughs> y'all can't let that happen. I mean, that – that defensive line is already incredible. The edge, Shaq and JPP on the edge. And the bigger, even bigger thing is they collapse that pocket in the middle with the Dominic Sue and the, what's it, Vida? What was that big boy's name? Vida? Vea. Yeah. Those guys crushed that pocket. Vea, Vea. Yeah. Christian Barmore to that defensive line. And Tom Brady's about to win another championship. But one little note here. You remember Aaron Robinson? Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I see him there at 29 to the Green Bay Packers. Very interesting. That kid is one of the few signing day. Now, don't get me wrong. This past signing day, JoJo Earl, we knew Alabama was recruiting JoJo Earl. We didn't know he was going to flip. Um, you know, we knew Alabama knew that Keanu Coat was going to, you know, was going to uh, flip earlier in the week. But we also knew Alabama was recruiting him. Aaron Robinson's that rare signing day commitment that we had no clue about we i don't think we'd even updated the guy hadn't really heard him mentioned at all committed to alabama ended up transferring didn't want to wait to play um a nick saban late signee who's now being projected in the first round i saw him at the senior bowl he's got good size he's got good variables it looks like so um i mean it's going to be interesting to see a guy who didn't think he could play at alabama who went to ucf and suffered a bad injury i believe here in the first round so just a little interesting side note. We're seeing some Alabama transfers. Joe Jalen yeah. last year in the second, and this kid here in the first. We're, see, we're seeing them getting the Bama NFL bump now. Yeah, Kendall Sheffield was another of those corners, right, from a few years yeah. back. Absolutely. Ended up with the Falcons, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was at Alabama and took off after Bo Davis left. So, um, yeah, interesting to see guys like that. It seems like – that spot at 30 is becoming sort of a sweet spot for Najee Harris and the Bills. I've seen multiple mocks now that have him, which is interesting because TJ Yeldon, pretty effective for the Bills the last year or two, is more of a situational player, kind of a third down back. But uh, he could be impacted, I guess, if the the Bills go this route with Najee. What a pick it would be. I mean, you've already got a big athletic quarterback. And, I, you know, I, I'm a Saints fan, but I, I love the NFL. I'm one of those guys that watch six to eight games every weekend, love to watch these guys, keep a close eye on them. But the Bills with Najee, it makes a lot of sense. Another team with a really good defense. Another, you know, the thing about Najee is him and Yeldon sort of complement each other. I mean, you know, not, and not, you know, I, you know, we said this several times last year when he was projected in the third. We said this, Najee's not only a really good running back, and he's a little awkward. He's a big kid. Uh, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't always look, though he looks like he's lumbering sometimes. But the facts are the guy's a sixth offensive lineman on the field. He blocks like nobody else. He catches like a tight end out of the backfield. Um, I mean, you can line him up anywhere. So he can catch just about any ball thrown to him. Nobody, and I said this all, nobody played harder than Najee Harris on an Alabama team where everybody played hard. Nobody, I mean, I mean, you go back and watch that Ohio State game. They had him two yards several times. 
Dude ended up with seven or eight yards dragging people. Just the effort there not to go down was really impressive. I think all that lining up. And he's going to interview really, really, really well. People are going to like him. Najee's a lot like Nick Saban, who was so quiet early in his career. We didn't know Nick Saban. The public didn't know Nick Saban had a personality, that he was dancing and making these nuts jokes and taking kids on lake. We didn't know that because he hid it from the public. When it got out, we saw a different size to him. Well, Najee's been super quiet. This is low-key is literally should be his middle name. This guy, remember how he showed up on campus? We found out he wasn't going pro. He just showed up on campus. Yeah, I think I saw Najee and Tua at uh, the Birmingham airport when they arrived. I was headed to Tampa for the national championship game that year. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. He just showed up, didn't really tell anybody. But I'm talking about when he came back this last year. Right. EOL subscriber saw Najee walking on the side sidewalk with a backpack. <laughs> Can you imagine? You know, like, is Najee coming back and you're all worried that he shows up in your class? Like, what? A, I mean, that's uh, that's just sort of he is. But did you see his personality coming out of these interviews? Um I think you I think I think you like him even more because the guy's got a big personality. You know, the one time I spoke to Najee, he didn't want to talk recruiting or about himself. We ended up like a 20 minute phone conversation about my kids video games. And um, I actually said, excuse me, I had to tell one of the boys something. And then Najee said, what are they playing? The next thing I know, we're in a uh, Call of Duty discussion or whatever the game was. And he was all about that, asking me what sports they played. It was a conversation like two adults. But he didn't really want to talk recruiting, and he didn't really want to talk about himself. So I think it's another thing we have to factor in is how well he's going to he's going to interview. Yeah, I, I think he is too. But you also know how NFL, some NFL clubs, take that. You know, they they get you in these interviews, they get you in these meetings, and some teams they just want to talk football, right? They just want to get you on the grease board. They want you to you know diagram blitz pickups and option routes and how you're going to react to these situations. I think Najee will do absolutely fine in that, but you're right. There's a lot more to this guy and some teams like that. And a few teams, maybe not so much, but the tape, the tape absolutely speaks for itself. Yeah. There's nothing to really, there's really no concerns with Najee, you know, there's no, no character issues, anything yeah, like yeah, that. When you look at him, there's nothing. I mean, the guy, I said it all along. I think you could have made a case that he was the Heisman winner this year, to be honest. I think, in fact, I think if nobody voted till after the national championship game, I feel pretty comfortable Najee would have been in that top three. You know, if he would got any hype, I believe, I mean, I believe, I'm not saying he should have won it. That's not my vote. My vote obviously would have been, would have been for Smitty, but I'm saying Najee, you could somebody could sit down and convince me he was the best player in the country this year. Absolutely. Did so much. Even after the Florida game, uh, there was, you know, a, a surge in support for Najee Harris as the top player in college football. All right, Tim, you want to get into this two thousand seven recruiting class revisit or you want to catch your breath, take a quick break, come back and dive in head first. Okay, let's do a break and come right back. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on a midweek edition of T-Watts and TR on the Bama Online Podcast. When we come back, we'll get in the time machine. We'll go back to 2007, Nick Saban's first recruiting class at Alabama. We'll also talk some recruiting as we wind down the program. Brian Thomas Jr. to LSU on Tuesday. You probably saw that. 
the checklist for Nick Saban when considering a replacement for Carl Scott on the defensive side of the ball. And we'll get back into some Mac Jones talk via the question, most likely to win a Super Bowl first, Jalen Hurts, Tua Tonga Vailoa, or Mac Jones. And of course, we'll have our roundtable mailbag as well. All that coming up next on the Bama Online Podcast right after this. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Back with more of T Watts and TR on the Bama Online Podcast. I'm Travis Ryer. He, of course, is Tim Watts. We certainly appreciate you joining us here on the Bama Online Podcast. If you haven't already, how about a subscription to the podcast. It's free. It's as simple as a click or two. And if you don't mind, a rating and a review would be very much appreciated as well. All right, Tim, you ready? You ready to go back to 2007? I guess at that point, to kind of put it into perspective, you and I had been partnering, working together at BOL, I guess it was four or five years in at that point. Yeah, we've been there probably about five years through some uh, pretty odd times at Shula. <laughs> Never forget the price story where I was uh, driving because at the time I didn't like to fly. I was driving to Houston, Texas for a basketball tournament and got one of the first Texas texts. I was one of the first texters ever, but got a text for somebody who kept calling me saying Mike Price had got caught um Party. Down in Pensacola. I was yes. Like, I was literally like, shut up, don't mess Ari, Ari's Angels, wasn't it? Yeah, there? I was like, yes. shut up, don't mess with me. And then he said, serious, and I called him, and all heck was breaking loose. You know, there was no check your phone uh, for the internet at that time. So we went from that. We went through Shula, saw some good times with Shula, saw some good recruits, Andre Smith and all that. But, yeah, when we got here, it was like, you know, this was a different level for you and I. Dealing with Nick Saban, that coaching search. You know, we had a lucky posting on the board. You know, we had a <laughs> we had the Tim Tebow interlude and all that too, uh, which was nuts. We had the Tebow countdown clock. That was my invention, and it it actually gave me an anxiety watching it. It was like <laughs> it was like the countdown to the end of your life. It just the clock was going backwards until Tim Tebow decided. What a huge! Imagine Tim Tebow's recruitment today. No, oh, all this social media stuff because it was it was huge back then. I mean, Andre was big. Nobody was bigger than Tebow, but imagine it today with a billion extra people covering it. You know, a lot of people cover it just for Twitter. You know, but it would be amazing. So yes, Nick Saban gets there. He waited, took his time, came after the season. So half the class was up in the air. Had maybe a couple of weeks. How long did he have to recruit? It wasn't very long. I mean, it was. It all had to happen really fast. 
And then it was on to Greg McElroy as the quarterback yeah. in that yes. 2006 that, class. It worked out okay. Yeah, that was uh, that was another yeah that was another crazy story. We focused on Tebow. They had Chris Smelly right there in Tuscaloosa, who ended up in South Carolina. It was thought that Smelly was waiting for Alabama to see if they got Tebow, and they thought Alabama would go on him. And then Smelly upped his date to commit before Tebow. And then I remember me and you discussing, like, dude, they got to get a quarterback. You know, they got to get a they got to get a quarterback. And then you're like, what about McElroy? We started hitting the phones and boom. <laughs> McElroy's know. like, oh, yeah, I talk to Dave Rader every week. Yeah, and we're then, like, uh, Ding! There it goes. Greg McElroy is next Mac, guy up. Mac was a Texas Tech commitment. And, he sure was, and committed to uh, Mike Leach, who sure did, did. Not, who did not take his flip very well. No, no, I don't think Mike appreciated Pirate, that. Pirate was was trying to rape and pillage after that one. There was a uh, quarterback commit in this 2007 class that we'll get to, and so. With that, we're going we're going to go full Marty McFly and Dr. Emmett Brown here, and going back to 2007. And you know, Tim, when you look at it in terms of, I guess highest rated recruit, although he didn't qualify at the time, Kerry Murphy, uh, the big lineman from Hoover High School, actually came up short of qualifying a couple of years in a row. There, he went to Hargrave, I believe, initially. Eventually did make it to Alabama around 2009, but um, kind of a defensive line class at the top and then a front seven class really at the very top. When you talk about Kerry Murphy, Luther Davis, a flip from LSU, right? Yeah. And then and then also Rolando McClain in there. Yeah, that's considered a big deal with Luther because he was an LSU commit and uh, Everybody in Louisiana lost it. You know, they lost it because they thought Nick was the Nick LSU was Nick Saban's true love, and he wasn't. And uh, <laughs> they got really upset. They were like, barring the, you know, we started hearing he's banned from the city, and you know, it was uh, it was a big deal to go get Luther simply because he's an LSU commitment. He's a decently rated guy, and it was a big deal. I mean, when you looked at it, um, a lot of people were talking about it. And who's the running back? Joe McKnight. Joe McKnight. Yes, I'll, I'll never the forget. late Joe McKnight, unfortunately. Yes, Joe now. McKnight, one of the best high school players <clears throat> I've ever watched play football. Just an electrifying dude who ended up at USC. I got Joe McKnight when Nick Saban was hired, and um, and he told me, like, oh, yes, I'm interested in Alabama. Yes, I plan to visit. Yes, I know Coach Saban. It's the only interview I'm aware he ever did because after that, the pressure on Joe McKnight – not to it wasn't to go to LSU. It was not to go to Alabama. I talked to his people throughout the process and after he went to USC just to get away from it. But I mean, I think USC was always in pretty good shape with him. He wanted to leave the state, but it kept him from visiting Alabama for sure. You also had Michael Ricks in that class, a defensive back from North Alabama who came up short of qualifying standards. He went to Northeast Mississippi Community College eventually landed in Tuscaloosa, but it was Stillman where Michael Ricks played uh, his four-year college football. And then we talk about the wide receiver position in 2008, and of course, that's Julio Jones, but Alabama did go to the Mobile area in 2007 to get Brandon Gibson, a four-star, who at the time, that was considered a pretty big hit, and 
also in an area where, frankly, Alabama hadn't had the kind of success it probably should have before Saban. Well, Saban had plenty of success in Mobile. Oh, Saban did, yeah. <laughs> Saban was very comfortable in the Mobile area, signing um, Chavis Jackson, played in the NFL, Jamarcus Russell, you know, just a dozen guys that he got from that area. They were very comfortable over there. So when they came back, it was a perfect storm because, one, they had to establish herself in Mobile, and they had a couple guys uh, – Felon Jones, Slidell Corley, highly ranked guys who were going, guess where, to LSU at the time. So Nick Saban and them go down. They want to set the uh, inroads because 08's obviously a very loaded group with Julio and, you know, Burton Scott and everybody else that was involved there. So went in there early to get their feet on the ground, knew what they were doing. And again, this is a, this is a place that sort of was like, uh, you know, some of the people down there were sort of bowed up, like didn't tr- I don't know. I don't I've never understood it. It's a different age back then than it is now with coaches bouncing around. But you had so many people bowed up like he ain't coming in here to recruit. And he j- did just that. He came right in there to put a mobile caravan together, in fact. So obviously made inroads. And Brandon was a big part of that first step there. Brandon Gibson at Alabama played in 29 games between 2009 and 2011. 20 catches for 204 yards and a touchdown. And Brandon Gibson, we're going to get into Marquise Mays coming up in just a little bit. Darius Hanks in just a little bit. A couple of three wide receivers in this class really went on to become complementary pieces, important complementary pieces to Julio Jones. And then even in 2011, sort of as standalone guys uh, did some good things as well. William Vlachos, uh, Vlahos, uh, the center for Mountain Brook, Tim, that was uh, that ended up being a, a really nice situation for Alabama. A couple of national championships for Vallejos at center, 2009-2011. He goes on to make 40 starts. A guy who you wondered a little bit about his measurables, but, it, it, again, it worked out just fine, I guess. No, it absolutely did. He's a great player. He's a bulldog. He's cut a little different. I drove up to Mountain Brook. Uh, high school to talk to him. You know, all these kids, you know, they all give off similar vibes. You have some guys like Riley Cooper, you can already tell, is a prima donna at 17. You have some guys that literally are so humble, you got to tell them, hey, you're really good. You might not know, but you're really good. Vallejos was just one of those guys, you know, where, you know, everybody was talking about the love, title love, and other people in that area, but Vallejos was the guy that was like the bulldog. When I went up there, to see him, he had, he had went an hour early to work out. He was head-to-toe sweaty um, from having worked out, and we were done. And I said, where's your car? And we were going to walk parking lot. And he said, I still got an hour to go. So this was a guy that was a – you know, when they say about being a dog, the ultimate compliment to anybody, I think that was him. I think he's that guy that would got in those trenches and just, just made Alabama very, very tough in that middle. You had Alex Watkins, an edge defender. From Brownsville, Tennessee, a four-star prospect who committed to Alabama under Mike Shula, uh, more of a situational guy during his career, a really good special teamer. Again, another guy, a part of two national championship teams. And at last check, Alex Watkins, an assistant strength coach over at Mississippi State. Yeah, when you yeah when you look at this class, you're getting mostly. With the exception, I think we skipped Rolando. Obviously, he was a standout, you know, top, top ten pick. Yeah. yeah, he was just. I mean, he's he's as good as any linebacker. Saying a lot too. He's as good as any linebacker Alabama's ever had um, at any level of any year. So, I mean, that, that tells you how good Rolando was. 
Um, but these other guys, I think you're seeing a lot of guys that were instrumental role players that that came in at a depth, and they had look. There's some sneaky good careers in this 2007 class we're talking about. There's guys like Brandon Gibson that had to offset and complement Julio. There's a lot of guys we're seeing. We're gonna get to three, two or three more here that'll show just how important, and it's also gonna show how good Nick Saban's staff was at evaluating. I mean, this class was done on a. I mean, it was done in a hurry. Um, I don't know the exact date Nick Saban actually showed up for work, and I think some of the staff came before him. But there wasn't a lot of time to recruit this class. No, and you had some misfortune with a handful of these guys. You know, I had a guy like Chris Lett, a uh, highly regarded safety prospect from the state of Florida. He's a diabetic. Uh, he ends up being medically disqualified. Demetrius Good, the running back, knee injury in his first practice at Alabama for Demetrius Good. Yeah, Chris Led is just terrible. I went and saw him twice. Went down. I was a frequent uh, <clears throat> driver to that Panhandle area that was producing so much talent. And uh, I saw Chris before a game one time, and he was he was laid on the couch in the coach's office. He was just spent, no energy, couldn't get up, felt bad. He still came out and played in that game. I don't know how. Um, just a really good looking athlete and a good kid, but yeah, terrible. You know, just a terrible deal there with his uh, his health. Yeah, Jeremy Griffin, a fullback from Batesville, Mississippi, knee injury uh, in 2009. He ended up medically retiring. Jamar Taylor, a running back from Lakeland, Florida, spent a spring here. The first spring under Nick Saban made the decision quickly to transfer back closer to home to USF. He was a he was more of a Mike Shula guy um at that point but alfred mccullough nick gentry getting back to some of those guys that you talked about not necessarily stars but certainly by the time you got to 2010 and especially 2011 gentry was a real problem in the pass rush for that 2011 team a playmaker of sorts mccullough very versatile was able to utilize him in a number of ways very valuable guys you really had a lot of three-star guys here with the chip on their shoulder, um, not highly recruited, committed by the Shula staff, motivated by the Saban staff. You really have a lot of guys that were willing to do just about anything to get on the field and help their team. It's a very unselfish group. And like us, the star power isn't nearly what we're used to seeing, especially, you know, starting in 08. Um, no, I mean, this is the, as far as star power goes. But when you look – there were some stars in this group. There were some guys that were stars on the college level that didn't necessarily translate to the NFL. Josh Chapman is one. We're about to talk about him. You know, William Vallejos. And then we had guys that came in that were stars in college and were stars in the NFL. Big part of the success of, say, the 2011 team had to do with some fifth-year guys out of this class, right? Marquise Mays. Uh, he was a Michigan commit, right, before flipping to Alabama? Absolutely. I mean, when you look, yeah, Marquise was big. To me, the guys that stood out the most that Nick Saban did a good job with was uh, Josh Chapman, who was committed to Auburn, and you had Marquise Mays committed to Michigan, and Chavis Williams. I mean, you had three guys mm-hmm. attributed as role players and had big plays. You can go back and look at that that history. Those were three guys. You know, obviously, then the evaluation skills come in with the Kareem Jackson, who's, I think, mm-hmm. I don't know. If, I doubt he's still the highest paid cornerback in the NFL, but he was last year or the year before still hunkering along here 10 years later. So um, really an interesting class to break down. Yeah. Kareem Jackson's versatility has ensured him 
a lengthy and lucrative NFL career. The first quarterback taken in the Nick Saban era on the recruiting trail, Nick Fanuzzi, a late commitment to that 2007 class. Apparently some ties there, I guess, with Major Applewhite out in the right. state of Texas and uh, a year or so in the program for Nick. And then he was off to Rice and Patrick Crump, another one of these guys that uh, medically retired after a year. And you said it with Josh Chapman, man, in retrospect. And again, projecting towards more so that 2011 team, another guy who was literally and figuratively huge for that Alabama defense. Yeah, there's yeah, there's no doubt about it. You know, the thing with Nick Fanuzzi, which was crazy, is we had remember Robert Marv, who was the Alabama commitment. Absolutely. I mean, and this Tampa, was, Florida. This was really hard to comprehend when you didn't really know the Saban and his methods. So you had Alabama with a kid that was pretty highly regarded from Florida. Was he from Plant? Sounds I like believe it was uh, Robert Wainer was his head yeah. coach. Remember, he might have been. Anyway, he's a big name quarterback. He's flirting around Alabama, sort of, you know, they're giving him the don't recruit, not the drop, but he's giving him the we're not really recruiting you that hard. He goes to Miami, I believe, transferred to Purdue. And then he had Nick Benuzzi who comes in. I mean, neither of them really had great careers. It was a lot of drama, though. It was three, four weeks that Nick Saban had to come in. There's a lot happening here. Nick Saban did a good job of keeping the guys uh, that Mike Shula had. There wasn't a lot of guys dropped. Um and then bringing in new guys and flipping guys. Again, flipping guys, that first year was the most important thing, was flipping guys that ended up paying off. Now, some of these guys were going, you know, some of these guys, Nick Gentry, some of these guys, William Vallejos, were going to Alabama regardless. You know, I could have been coaching. And um, they uh, they just loved Alabama. But some of these guys, Marquise Mays was a, was a tough get. You had to do – she had to do some work there. That guy was all over the place. Tennessee was involved at one point. Michigan was involved. And obviously a really, really big part of that special teams. <clears throat> and look at these, you know, we're getting to Darius Hanks now. You got Darius Hanks, you got Marquise Mays, you got Brandon Gibson. A lot of complimentary players to Julio Jones. Yeah, a good trivia question, too. With all the success Alabama has had in the state of Texas, first signee for Nick Saban at Alabama from the state of Texas a safety by the name of Terrence Farmer spent a year at Alabama before transferring to Wyoming. You mentioned Chavis Williams earlier, really good special teamer reserve member of the 2009 national championship team. He's in high school coaching now, Tim, he's up the road at Dora. I believe that's his second stop on the head coaching uh, trail uh, as that's a coach. Where, so that's where he played. So it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Another good kid, another quiet kid. There's a lot of good kids in this class. I mean, guys that, that that were uh, again were just workhorses, guys that wanted to work, they just wanted to play football. When you talk to them, you know, even those higher ranked guys, Rolando McClain was one of the one of the. I mean, for Rolando to be rough, rough and rugged off the field as he was, Rolando was a really smart. He's a highly intelligent guy, heck of a football player, good basketball player, fun to be around, quick with a smile, all that stuff. I think he just liked to roughhouse a little bit back, you know, growing up in his. You know, and then he goes to Oakland of all places, you know, where he's, you know, they got the reputation. But Rolando was one of the best kids I've spoke to um, and been around. I went to that school twice. Remember, they had uh, Gerard Powers. Remember him, the small the D corner. Yeah. Went to Auburn. Yeah. Auburn ended up playing in the NFL for a few years. And then they had uh, Sam Bernthal, who signed with Alabama. So 
quite quite little and quite nice little area, like nice little area of talent up there. I used to go see, but Rolando was another one of these good kids. State of Georgia, as we know, Tim has been very good to Alabama under Nick Saban. Darius Hanks, one of those first hits late in that 2007 process. He goes on to play on two national championship teams himself, 84 catches, 1,150 yards, and seven touchdowns. And again, when you think about, say, 2010, 2011, I mean, he was right there. He was out there with Julio in 2010, and then uh, he and Mays were were really counted on on that 2011 team. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, I, I mean, I'm probably saying the same thing repeatedly over and over, but everybody in this group, even when you look down like Rob Ezell, there was a lot of character here. You know, there was a lot of guys that had, like, who played above, you know, they weren't highly recruited guys, but they probably played above their recruitment, if that makes sense. I mean, even a guy like, you know, Kareem Jackson, you know, that that's a guy we did have a four-star of Lejos. We had a four-star. There were four stars were really hard to come by then. You know, it's changed. I mean, think about when we were, they used to celebrate a four-star like it was a six-star. And now, you know, you know, a five-star is just a ho-hum day unless Alabama fans are going to get them. The trans, the transfer from, I mean, 07, this is a good time to talk about this class from 07 to 2021 in the class they just signed with, is it seven five stars total of nine? If you take both uh, rankings, um, it really is absurd how big the difference is. Yeah, this 2007 class, according to the 24/7 Sports Composite rankings, 12th nationally and seventh in the Southeastern Conference. All things considered, given the timing of the change and everything else, not bad in retrospect uh, to to get this done. And you talk about guys that again sort of undervalued in retrospect. Chris Underwood was one of those guys at tight end. He too played on a couple of national championship games. And again, 2010, 2011, more so than his first couple of three years in the program played in 26 games. And, you know, he and Brad Smelly in 2011 were pretty central figures in a lot of that two tight end stuff that Jim McElwain back then loved to to put in play. You talking about a guy who's recruitment, Rated a two-star, which is almost impossible, really. Uh, very limited offers. You know, he played for Buddy Anderson over at Best Davy. There's not a lot of publicity that comes out about individual players there. In fact, when I talked to Chris Underwood's dad, he was rightly pretty upset that we had never called about him. However, we had called about him and was told they didn't feel they had any SEC or Division One guys uh, on that team. But I understood his dad being upset, but his recruitment completely under the radar right up the road from me. Um, but, yeah, another guy, chippy guy, another guy with a chip on his shoulder. Yeah, Jeremy Elder in that class. He redshirted at Alabama, the defensive lineman, transferred to Georgia Military College, went on to finish his career at Troy, and tragically passed away at the age of 25 in 2013 of an apparent heart attack. Jennings Hester, a linebacker from the Atlanta area, took a medical in 2009, did go on to get his undergrad and his master's in sports management from Alabama. So that pretty much puts a lid on that 2007 class, uh, Tim. If you look at Jenny Hester's profile picture, he is the quintessential high school football player from the 80s. Cut off sleeves. He's got a curly hair. He's such like a throwback guy. <laughs> guy, good guy to talk to. 
And he was very, he was, he was like that old school, you know, take me up coach, put me in, I'm good. You know, faking, faking the uh, concussion test to get back in the game, guessing the number of fingers. So a total old school guy. That's a good memory. I was a good kid. Yeah. One of those guys too. I mean, you knew he was going to be a success in life. And from what I understand, uh, very successful in sales these yeah, days. There, there was no, I can see that. You knew you, some of these guys, you're right. You can talk to Brandon Gibson that way too, right? Yes, there's yes. Another good one. There's Preston dials. Another one. You can talk to guys and you can just know they're going to be successful in life. You know what I mean? It's like Terry and Arnold's one in this class. He's going to be successful, whether it's football, basketball, high lie, you know, selling insurance, running a, you know, Fortune 500 company. The guy's probably going to be successful because he's got, he's really got, you know, a lot of these guys are smart. You can just tell the maturity level in many of them, you know? That was a fun exercise, and we're going to continue to do these it as we move. It was a class I had not thought about in a really, really long time. Fun to go back a little bit. Definitely. We're going to do these as we move throughout the offseason, keep moving through these Nick Saban era classes. Um, Tim, wanted to hit on some newsy items here on the podcast with you. As I'm sure our subscribers and college football fans, certainly SEC fans in general, took note of on Tuesday, Brian Thomas Jr., the wide receiver from Walker, Louisiana, commits to the home state LSU Tigers. Obviously, Alabama had involvement there. Intriguing prospect, I guess, to say the least, in terms of trying to figure out where this guy was ultimately going to land. Although, maybe was it a surprise at all in the end? And I, it wasn't us. We knew it wasn't Alabama. You know, they just didn't have room at that time. It would have had to been a gray shirt type deal. I think the Aggies took the big L in this situation because they really were all in with them. I'm not sure. I think LSU recruited him. And I think Alabama had recruited him throughout the process. This guy's super quiet, you know, takes super quiet to the next level. He makes Julio Jones look like Oprah Winfrey. I mean, this guy literally doesn't talk. In fact, Shea Dixon on our LSU site said Brian didn't even tell the LSU staff where he was going. Hey, and I believe it. I think the dude just went and committed. So I think with Brian, I know the Alabama staff liked him. Man, they they got four really good wide receivers. Uh, couldn't have taken another one in this class. They could have, you know, gray shirt or blue shirt or whatever. They could have figured out a way there. Obviously, Brian's, you know, good enough to get a regular scholarship just about anywhere else even though there's really not a difference between those three other than the timing of when you come in. So not a big surprise here when he went past signing. I mean, you knew in the early period when Jojo Earl committed, you knew right away. Alabama had four guys, Jojo Earl, Christian Leary, slot guys, Ja'Cory, and you got uh, Aggie Hall. You got those guys on the outside. So you knew the class was really good and really complete. So anything else would just be gluttonous. Gluttonous. Hey, let's talk about uh, a checklist that Nick Saban has in mind when it comes to a replacement for Carl Scott. Guess a little bit of a surprise, not so much that Carl Scott is moving on from Alabama, that he is moving on to the Minnesota Vikings of the National Football League, because most of the smoke a week or so ago involved Maryland, right? Yeah, I think Carl with the Vikings came on late. I know he interviewed with Loxley. Mike Loxley at Maryland a few weeks ago on Saturday, we reported that. And uh, I believe he got the Maryland job offer, ended up choosing to go to the to the Vikings. He interviewed for the Vikings, I believe, the day after signing day. You know, and they're, they're, you know I, I think with a guy like Carl Scott, he's an up-and-comer. He's going to do a good job. You know, the thing is, when you're at Alabama, and, and whether it's rightly so or not, like if you're at Alabama and you're the corners coach, 
you're, you know, most people consider Nick Saban the corners coach. You're like the assistant corner coach to most people, although it's not that simple. Nick Saban's obviously involved, but these guys, Derek Ansley did it before, Carl Scott, they do a great job working with those cornerbacks, obviously. But when you get a chance to go to the NFL, we saw Derek Ansley in two short years do what? He left Alabama. He went to uh, the Raiders, and then he went from the Raiders to a D.C. job at Tennessee pretty quickly. So you can see that jump. In fact, the Vikings' last cornerback coach, I believe he's the guy LSU hired as their defensive coordinator, yes, right? that's correct, yeah. So a guy like Carl, he's young. I mean, you can go, you know, you get the Maryland D.C. offer or a job like you. To me, when you're young, you got to be really confident you're going to the right place. And it's thin window because, like, Kirby Smart was super patient Super smart. So he probably passed over opportunities he could have had because he wanted what he considered a slam dunk. Um, Jeremy Pruitt, probably a little less patient. Uh, very, you know, a guy that, you know, anybody that knows Pruitt or has read about Pruitt knows he doesn't lack confidence. But he's a guy that took the first big job he could get at Tennessee, even though it was sort of, you know, on the, you know, it was definitely trending down. Georgia, when Kirby took it over, was still trending up. They were still a, nine or 10 win team pretty comfortably. So Tennessee obviously was at a different stage. So, you know, with, with Scott's replacement, they're going to look for a recruiter, um, a guy that wants to learn, a guy that wants to cut his teeth, cut his teeth. And be honest, when you look at a resume and they say, I did three years, not only at Alabama, but literally under Nick Saban at cornerbacks, those guys know this guy is going to one, know how to coach two. He's going to have a work ethic and three, he's going to have a lot of knowledge of the game and four, he can take a lot of shit. You know, he's got to go out there and be the assistant coach to Nick Saban, who is so demanding. And how involved is Saban still? I mean, you hear like he's working with the corners. And uh, Devonta Smith told a story last week I saw where Nick Saban's out there showing the corners how to how to guard Devonta. Hey, this is how y'all stop Smitty. Get out here. All right. You know, come on out here and shut down Smitty. So Saban's obviously heavily involved. But, you know, I think the replacement will be a recruiter, probably a younger guy. Somebody wanted to get on that resume and all that stuff. So don't, don't, I don't doubt Saban. I mean, I've never doubted his hiring skills for the most part. Everything's been a home run. The staff he's put together. I remember when, you know, some of these guys left, Sark left, Flood left, Banks left. Everybody said, oh, my God, it's over. I'm sick of these changes. Then Nick brought in every head coach in the NFL who was uh, available. And, you, you, I mean, you saw, you know, you saw what kind of staff he just put together, Jay Graham. Robert Gillespie. We haven't even talked about these guys, but they're some of the best in the business, Bill O'Brien and Doug Marone. So they'll get somebody good, obviously. How big is the Texas thing with Scott and Banks gone? I mean, we know Alabama has recruited Texas successfully pre those guys. Um, but but how how exactly how big is that in the in the grand scheme of things? And does it maybe depend as much on what Sark's able to get done? in his first couple of years you know, as anything me, else. You know, to me and completely speculate. And I think that when, you know, Nick Saban, Saban almost is like a Viking. He's almost like a Viking where he raids areas. And he saw Texas was, was vulnerable with, with um, just Jimbo Fisher recruiting there and Jimbo Texas A&M does some national stuff too. So he saw that the state's so big that they had a lot of holes there. He had a lot of connections there. And he went in there and got a lot of those guys. But when you lose banks, when you lose Scott, you might see them shift to another area. There might be another state that they'll want to focus on um, and get some players. I think Texas will be more about what they signed seven last year. I think something. Mm-hmm. I think. I think in the future you might see more spot recruiting because you're going to have to battle Texas. 
not just SART, but Texas. When you know Texas is a big, powerful program when they've got their confidence and everybody behind them. So Texas and obviously Jimbo Fisher and the Aggies do a really good, good job of recruiting as well. So might might still go in and cherry pick some guys, guys that love them. Um, I don't know if they'll give that full effort, but it could depend on this next hire. I mean, I'm not aware of any of the four new hires having a lot of strong to connect, uh, Texas connections. But, you know, I think when you look at some of these guys, I think, you know, you've got a lot of I can recruit anywhere in a guy like, say, Jay Graham, who feels he can probably go anywhere. I imagine Robert Gillespie figures this, you know, figures out the same way. And, of course, Alabama sells itself and so does Nick Saban. So I think they'll be fine in Texas. If they choose to, they might choose to go in different directions. All right, Tim, we're to the point of the podcast where I'm going to ask you the question. Most likely to win a Super Bowl first, Jalen Hurts, Tua Tonga Bailoa, or Mac Jones? I'm gonna go with Tua, simply based on who the best team is. I mean, Mac's uncertainty. I mean, I feel if Mac fell to the Saints and everything clicked, the Saints have an NFL. They have a Super Bowl roster. I mean, they need a quarterback. Obviously, Drew Brees was down. If he falls to the right spot, maybe even Pittsburgh or somebody, he could be in contention. I think Tua has a good franchise that are doing the right things. I think they're going to put the right pieces around him. Um, Obviously, he has a ways to go. There's not an easy answer here. I mean, Jalen's still raw, um, you know, still still figuring out the the nuances of that Eagles. The Eagles, to be honest, the Eagles didn't do the guy a lot of favors. They're running basically the same offense that looked like they ran with Carson Wentz with a little bit different skill package. You know, even the plays they had brought in for him, weren't like Jalen's specialty plays um, before he became a starter. So I think Jalen would probably be second and Mac third. I mean, I think it's pretty open, but I think two is, I think his coaching staff and I think the way the Dolphins handled themselves, I'm a big fan of what they're trying to do. So I expect them to do really well in this draft based on what they've done in the yeah, past. The situation with Jalen he needs a lot of help there and we're still not exactly sure what's going to happen with Carson Wentz. Although it looks like very much he's on his way out of Philly, which would lead you to think Jalen is next guy up there. I like the idea of Todd McShay's mock draft that we talked about earlier in the show of a big time receiver there when, when the Eagles pick in the top 10 coming up in April, I'm with you though. I don't know enough about where Mac's going to end up. Um, you know, I, I, I like Max chances probably the later he goes in the first round, uh, because that means he's probably going to a better situation, a more established situation. Uh, but get yeah, to a, with the draft capital that the Dolphins have and the strong young nucleus they already have in place. Really love Brian Flores as a head coach. Uh, they've made some changes staff wise on the offensive side of the ball that should benefit to and his development. So those three, I don't know how you go against Tua uh, at this point. Eagles, you just you got to see the Eagles. They did they did nothing to help Carson Wentz. Had mm-hmm. a very you know last year they could have had Justin Jefferson and chose the uh, Raider from TCU. The year before they could have had DK Metcalf from McCole Hardman and they chose I think there's even more than that. They chose a kid from Stanford who's probably solid, but uh, you know obviously not the level of DK Metcalf. So they're not making great decisions to help Wentz. Certainly Carson's taken over, not a great shape. You know, the offensive line was banged up, no wide receivers. They do have you know a couple of tight ends that are pretty good, and you know, running back is decent. So I don't know. It's a good it's a good it's gonna be good. I, I do feel one of them could very well could win a Super Bowl though. 
Thanks again to Goat Latia on the roundtable, by the way. She made sure we included Jalen in that mix uh, as one of those three quarterbacks. And so we appreciate the input there. In the Bama Online Roundtable mailbag, which we will now jump into, and one of the questions I posed to crank up the mailbag was a movie you've watched more times than any other movie. What is that for you? What is that flick for you, Tim? I've seen Lake Placid a hundred times, and I don't know why. If it's not <laughs> it came on now, I would not be able to finish this podcast. Shawshank Redemption, I've probably seen. Yeah. An equal amount you know those are just movies i don't pass up i mean the the ones i love the most the ones i'd probably rate the highest i probably haven't seen as much because i don't want to wear them out as far as like great movies i love seven's another one i've probably seen too many times i don't want to get too familiar with them like i watch the godfather trilogy about once every 18 months usually with a different you know different one of the kids so um that's probably the main three and i'll never pass up a paul rudd movie you know i've seen clueless a lot basically because the kids love it. So we ended up watching it. Um, and I like it too. So, you know, I'm one of those kids of cable guys. I was around, I know you were too, when cable first came to be. So HBO, man, when it came out, it was, we wore that out and we wore that and MTV out when they actually played music videos. So there was a movie that I had never even been made aware of when it was in the theaters, probably understandably so, given my age at the time. But The Hollywood Nights, kind of a cult classic, a comedy with Robert Wool. You had a young Tony Danza in that. Michelle Pfeiffer was in that movie. Really a raunchy comedy about some high school kids out in the L.A. area and set more in the 50s, probably early maybe the 60s i guess early 60s and just a funny hilarious movie and we just between that and caddyshack when it dropped on hbo i mean we we watched it every time so it's probably one of those from the youth is michelle pfeiffer in hollywood nights or my misremembering? no no she is yeah young michelle pfeiffer is in that i remember she's a baby isn't she yeah tony danza she's the girlfriend of tony yeah she's very yeah New very, Bomb Turk and those uh, ne'er do wells. The girl's got the girl with the annoying voice. Yes, and New I mean, Bomb Turk. I, he he farts through Valari, you know, at the pep rally at the high school. Yeah, uh, it's, it's just incredible uh, cinema. But you know, one one that I'm into recently that I watched again last night is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's not even my favorite uh, Quentin flick. But it, I, it's just so – I love the period that it's yeah. based upon, it's, and the performances are so great. They are. I have an issue. I suck when it comes to, like, if I know the results, like Titanic, I can't really watch it. I know that thing's not going to survive. Pearl Harbor, <laughs> I've tried to watch Pearl Harbor. I knew what was coming. I don't know why it is. Historical stuff I know about. Now, I watched the whole series, The Vikings, and loved it, but I don't know what – anything about the Vikings. I do, you know, I do now obviously and looked into some of that stuff. So if I don't know the history, it's almost like that movie, the blind side, I read the book. I know what happened in that recruitment. Take that movie, Sandra Bullock. And I don't want to hear it. So, um, but yeah, so the, the movies like that, I was upon Hollywood's beautiful. It's fantastic. It's a great period piece, but I, you know, I've read a lot on the Manson murder. So I knew that was well. Well, the good thing about the movie though, is Quentin takes the liberty of the alternative ending. 
you know, yeah. kind of with, with how that goes. <laughs> it was awesome. I wish I had never known anything about it because I'd have enjoyed it more. And then yeah. I searched it, I think. But it's Damn. an awesome Jam Bama in the uh, mailbag wants to know best miniseries ever. And he says, hint, it's either Fargo or True Detective. I guess if we're talking about season one or three. And he says, no, it's not really debatable. So best miniseries ever, Tim. Yeah, he's lucky. He knows my answer. I debate him on this. Um, did True Detective season one. I mean, I've seen some good ones, but True Detective season one stood out the most. Matthew McConaughey, who I didn't thing was particularly a great actor was in that yeah, role. killed it i mean just murdered it i mean it was unbelievable role woody harrelson who i love and almost anything he does is in it it's well acted it's thought out it's it's got that louisiana cajun flavor to it which i love it's got that backwards louisiana feel storylines creepy as it can get everybody in it's creepy so that's always going to be my favorite he also asked given the option of alabama winning a national championship in baseball or men's basketball, which do you choose and why? Wow. Um, hoops. I choose basketball. I mean, I grew, cut my teeth, got in this business, running into basketball scouting service. It's always my favorite sport. I still watch it, much to my chagrin sometimes, the NBA in college. I love it. I think for the fans, basketball would be bigger. But I, I do think I really like what Bohannon's doing. I haven't really seen a lot of that since Jim Wells. I'm hoping this team goes well. But I think basketball, simply because the history's been there longer. Alabama's been to College World Series. I remember I was in Texas watching Roger Clemens, I think, pitch against Alabama in a mid eighties. Yeah. yeah. Calvin Chiraldi. Wasn't Dave you know, Alabama's Alabama's been to a couple of national championship games in baseball. Right. right? That's what I was saying. But basketball has seen one Elite Eight which was the craziest lead eight. That wasn't even close to their best team. And um, the fans went Ernest crazy. Shelton yeah. got hot. And what Kennedy? They right rolled. Out of the blue. Kennedy Winston. Yeah. Big, crazy recruitment. Was a kid from kid that ended up signing with Cal, getting out of his scholarship. Chuck Davis. He yeah. was. The, yeah, he was the Kennedy Winston was the was the first transfer portal that I remember. He was. I want to be closer to home. Went to Cal. Came home. Led him to Elite Eight, but. Um, I think the moments in basketball are bigger. I mean, Antoine Petway winning the SEC against Florida. I don't know any Bama true fan that doesn't remember that moment. The red shoes he was wearing, you know, the backdoor cut, Ernest Shelton, you know, hitting him, cutting to the basket, you know, was a great moment. So I would go basketball. I think it would mean more. I think baseball would be awesome, um, especially with the work I think this that staff does. And by the way, Jam – I'm with Tim on True Detective season one, but I also put Band of Brothers up there with just about any uh, any show, any mini series you wanna you wanna roll up. Um, let's uh, let's get to a final mailbag entry here. And by the way, goes to Bryant, and he really gave me grief about Jackass, and you did too. You kind of piled on too there, Tim. With my jackass selection for top three television shows of all time. Travis, both of us were not going to survive with our record <laughs> intact. One of us had to go down. To you. Like, all I know is that TV show spawned two movies. Not that we needed either one of them, but that's what happened. You know. The best post he had was he said, you literally chose the show that created the phrase jump the shark. I did. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Absolutely. And that's Greatest another feather in its cap. 
greatest episode. I made my kids watch watch it. Just I mean, probably less than sometime in the summer. I made my yeah. kids watch that on YouTube. They're like, Look, "Why is he wearing the jacket?" I'm like, "I don't." Know. Look, some of us get enjoyment out of wee man shooting bottle rockets out of his butt. All right, just some uh, of us I, do. I can't explain why. Fine jackass, but man, those guys. Some of that stuff's. I mean. Getting a penis branded on your rear end? Well, I mean, Johnny Knoxville's permanently impaired in ways that we won't oh, go man. into because of that show. I don't I, I don't think it was all worth it. I don't think it was. Oh, won't my be gosh. End. I mean, I get, you know, you do wild and crazy stuff in your youth yeah. and on for like 10 years. Ah, sport for you, he posts. Tim mentioned there were always varying opinions on recruiting rankings between Coaches and rankers. Tim said this pertaining to three-star guys, but I'm sure it obviously varies across the board. Who are some guys in the 2021 class the coaching staff loves and would rank higher than their 24-7 ranking, in your opinion, Tim? Yeah, I think when you come down to this, when you talk to coaches, coaches are you know very logical. So, their five-star list or their top guys list is also going to be factored into can they even get him. You know what I mean? There's no coach. There's not many coaches going to say, you know, Corey Foreman's my best, the best player in the country and number one on our board and can't get him. You know, it's almost like, you know, a lot of the, it's just a lot of the, the lip service you get. When it comes to Alabama guys, I'll give you two names I'm super high on. Two names. Write them down, people. Get your pen and paper. Robbie Oots who I've been talking about for a while. I think the Alabama staff loves mm-hmm. him. Um, I think he's just that, you know, I know other staff saw him play basketball, and I was talking to him at some after signing today. I think he's a good athlete. You're talking about a guy that's got a little nasty in him, a little chip on his shoulder, just wants to play football. And he's going to sort of be that that hybrid, you know, mix in a little Irv Smith and, you know, Brad Smelly maybe. And I think you're getting what you get with Robbie. And another one we don't talk about near enough, including myself, is Anquin Barnes who is not – he does not have the same DNA I do. There's no way a man that big and I have the same uh, same genetics in any, any way whatsoever. This guy's massive, size 14 shoe, um, and he's raw. He's just starting to figure out what he can do. When you watch him in high school, he's playing both ways. When you watch guys, big guys, 300-plus guys, and I tell other guys doing evaluating, you can't be – you got to understand a 300 pound guy playing both ways is probably going to get tired in the fourth quarter. All right. They're probably going to let their technique and stuff go down. I think a lot of people don't understand that Barnes is a guy that looked solid on film, but when he went to the Alabama Mississippi all-star game, anybody that saw those, those clips and stuff, they saw what he could do. Cause all of a sudden he's putting those mitts on you. Those are some big hands to put on you and shed. And he's actually doing moves. So when you get him at Alabama, Dancing Bear, Dancing Bear, Tim, or, or is he still getting there? Dancing Bear status? I think, I think he's a bear who's taking dancing lessons. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if him and JC Latham were dancing, I think JC would have to tell him one, two, three, one, two. Follow my lead. Right. Follow, follow my lead. I think JC okay. the dancing. Right. I think he's a bear taking dancing lessons. It has a big upside. There's two guys right there. I think the staff uh, identified not a lot of the, not a lot of talk about them. Very quiet guys, and I think there's two that definitely are pretty high on the board. Well, there you go. It's been a fun one, man. Kind of flew by. We took up some time, but uh, covered a lot of ground and had a lot of fun doing it. Anything else for us, Tim? As we get out of here, 
No, it's been a good one. It was fun. Finishes basketball season. Recruiting's basically done except for JTT, who's going to announce sometime in uh, April, maybe, when he takes visits. And, you know, we're seeing the 2022 class slowly start to take shape with, uh, you know, uh, Woodward, Woodward from uh, Mobile. And they've got a Walter Bob, who's a, who's a big-time-looking athlete from Louisiana. He's got some academic work to do, but he's a guy um, – you know, so this 2020 class will slowly but surely start to take place. And Alabama, again, will be selective. Other teams might have 25 commitments by the end of March. Alabama might have three. I would encourage everybody to be patient and let, you know, let them, let them, let them see what they can come up with in the lab. Spring practice will be here before you know it. We'll have all that coverage for you there, of course. If there's a spring practice and everybody can go, I hope everybody that can go goes. That's going to be – we said it last year would have been a great year to watch Bryce and to watch Mac and Tyson work. And mm-hmm. we didn't get a chance because of that. But this year you're getting a chance to look at Bryce showcased. And then you're getting a chance to look at, you know, Paul Tyson, obviously, and Jalen Milrow, who's a guy I'm high on. Although I think it could be a couple of years down the road for we really see his full potential. But I think Jalen Milrow should be more excited about working with, uh, Bill O'Brien than anybody. I mean, a quarterback that's raw, who's a gifted athlete. So, and then you got the other guys on offense that are going to probably factor in more immediately when you talk about offensive tackle, offensive line in general, wide receiver. Yeah, offensive side of the ball. Spring practice is going to be especially important for those guys in 2021. All right, Tim. As always, appreciate the time, my man. A lot of fun. We'll do it again next week. Thanks, guys. See you, Trav. For Tim Watts, Travis Schreier, thanking you once again for joining us here on the Bama Online Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast, won't you? And a, uh, a review and a rating would be greatly appreciated as well. Until next time, so long, everybody. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or... I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.